Good morning, Calvary. Would you stand and join me um, in standing for the reading of today's scripture reading? Today's scripture reading will be taken from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Um, for those of you who are here, um, it's in the Pew Bible, page 942. And for those of you joining from home and who have a Pew Bible, it's also page 942. Let's go before the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Good morning. Good morning. I came up on the stage here to get ready to preach, and I realized I didn't have a mic which maybe you all would have preferred that just to not have to. Let's thank you. Thank you, Gennard. I appreciate that. So it's good to see you all. I can get myself sorted here again. And uh, join at the live stream. Good to see you all or be seen by you all as well. We had a, a beautiful service last Sunday. I don't know if you were, were here for that or were able to catch it on the live stream. But so great to see so many baptisms and to listen uh, to so many encouraging testimonies. If you missed it, the whole service was recorded, and so you can go into the app or online, and you can watch not only the sermon uh, that Pastor Johnny preached following the baptisms, but all the baptisms are online uh, as well. So I encourage you to go back and uh, watch those if you, if you missed them. Super encouraging. And uh, with the baptisms, uh, Pastor Johnny preached, and I, I really appreciated the connection that he drew last week between baptism and exile, which is the current chapter uh, that we are in in our sermon series. We've been uh, doing our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And Johnny helpfully drew out this connection for us. I'm going to focus on baptism again uh, today, the theme of baptism. But this time, I want to draw a different connection. I want to draw a connection between baptism and politics. And uh, for the next two Sundays, we're going to take a break from our sermon series proper, and uh, we're going to explore how baptism has a, a theological framework, a gospel framework for helping us achieve, as a congregation, Christian unity in the midst of our political diversity. And I'm thinking specifically of this in the context here for us at Calvary. I mentioned uh, a number of weeks ago uh, that we're a pretty politically diverse congregation, and I haven't done any stats on this. We haven't done a survey, but just in my interaction with folks, 
my sense is that probably about half of us would vote Democrat, half of us would vote Republican, about a 50-50 split. And 2020 has been an especially difficult uh, and politically intense year. Everything has been politicized in 2020. So from mask wearing to the role of the police to race. And then as we approach the presidential election, which is coming up here rapidly, the intensity of the political, uh, the political concerns are only increasing. So I suspect that here at Calvary, most of us, most of the time, just try to paper over our political differences. And uh, we know that Christian maturity or Christian unity rather is a, is a mark of Christian maturity. And so uh, so we aspire to Christian unity, and so we do our best to love those that we disagree with. I mean, after all, Jesus calls us to love morally sinful people. And so in the same way that a good Christian chooses to graciously love a fascist or a communist or a bank robber or a crooked lawyer, Christian Democrats among us choose to love Calvary folks who have committed the moral sin of voting Republican. And the Christian Republicans among us choose to love the Calvary folk among us who have committed the moral sin of voting Democrat. And I suppose that's better than just hating each other, right, if those are our options. But the gospel actually gives us more resources for living together in unity and in harmony with each other, more than just simply tolerating each other's political immorality, so the goal of the sermon series this next two weeks is to help us see how baptism provides a gospel framework for helping us see how we can gladly and charitably embrace each other as Christian brothers and sisters in the midst of, not necessarily in spite of, but in the midst of our political diversity. Now, I know that some of you, and I, I love you, truly, I really do. I know that some of you are a bit more scorched earth when it comes to politics. For you, the other side, and we have both groups that would consider the other side the other side, is the embodiment of all things evil. And everything that is wrong with the world can be seen in the other side. And so you have no category for understanding how a fellow Christian could vote in an opposite direction from you. And if that's you, let me encourage you to take a deep breath and listen for the next two weeks as charitably and as reasonably as you can and consider, just consider, withhold judgment for the next two weeks, consider the possibility that there just might be Good Christian folks here in our congregation and beyond who have all the exact same Christian values that you have and who want to see Christianity flourish in exactly the same ways that you want to see Christianity flourish, but for Christian reasons, choose to vote a different way than you vote. And then once our little sermon series on politics is done, if you are still convinced that the other side is politically immoral, then you can go back to loving them as a bunch of sinners, right? That's all right. <clears throat> all right. There are going to be two main parts to today's sermon, and I'm not going to try to 
get everything that needs to be said about this topic done today. I'm going to try to lay a theological foundation from Romans chapter 6, looking at our text on baptism, and then we're going to uh, lay that foundation, and then next week we'll be able to move uh, into some of the more political nitty-gritty. So if we're going to look at Romans chapter 6 today, and then I want to begin to draw out one of the main implications of Romans chapter 6 as it relates to politics, and that'll be today's sermon, and then we'll move into some other issues next week. All right, so Romans chapter 6, John has read it for us already, and uh, let's jump into that passage. There's a lot to say in Romans chapter 6. All of Romans chapter 6 is about baptism. And so when we had our baptismal service last week, I read from Romans chapter 6 right before we did the baptisms. It's very often what we do for our baptismal services because this is such an extended treatment about the nature of baptism and about the gospel. And there's a lot that could be said here. But the main thing that I want us to focus our attention on here in this passage is how baptism communicates two distinct but inseparable truths about the gospel. So look back here into our text. We can pick it up uh, in verse 3 just to note a few of the themes here. But look for these two distinct movements of the gospel. They're not especially hard to see. Do you not know, Paul says in verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So here we have this theme of death with Christ, but then also life with Christ. And he comes back to it again in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So death and resurrection, death and resurrection. We know, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we die with Christ and it puts to death this body of sin, this old way of living. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we will also live with him. Right? So we, we, we die to the old way of life. We move into this new way of living with Christ. So there's these two movements in baptism, dying with Christ and rising with Christ. So I don't know if you've ever had this question or ever wondered why baptism was chosen as the initiation rite for the Christian faith. You become a Christian, the ideal is that you would be baptized and the kind of church historically throughout our history for 2,000 years, in order to, to be initiated, as it were, into the membership of the church, you would undergo the rite of baptism as a sign of your belonging to the Christian community. Why was baptism chosen by God as this initiation rite? It's because baptism enacts the gospel story. It's a statement itself about how the convert, this new convert who is now entering into the Christian community, has died to sin and death and has been raised to life. Dying to sin and rising to new life is the gospel story. 
That is the gospel story. And so baptism is living out or enacting this gospel story. In baptism, we go under the water as a sign of our union with Christ in his death. We are being buried with Christ under the water. And then we're raised up out of the water as a sign of our union with Christ in his resurrection. So baptism is a sign of conversion. It enacts conversion because it pictures what happens spiritually at conversion. We die to our old way of life apart from Christ to sin and to death, and we rise up with Christ to the newness of life. So to be baptized into Christ, just like it means to come to Christ for salvation, to be baptized into Christ's death is to explicitly acknowledge that we have been born into a damaged and broken world, a world that is marred by sin and that has marred us by its sin as well. To be baptized is to acknowledge that we are in danger spiritually and physically in danger, and we need to be saved, and that we need a benevolent power greater than our own, God's power, that is able to fix the problem that we have that we can't fix on our own. That's the statement of baptism. But baptism is not only a statement about our sin and our brokenness, the world's and our own. To be baptized into Christ's life is also a statement about the hope of the world to come. To be baptized is to express faith that God's resurrection power is able to fix what has been broken. That the broken world that is will become the all things new world of the future. So the message that's conveyed to us in our baptism is always a twofold message. It's a message that we must die with Christ to our old life of sin and that we must rise with Christ to the newness of life. And then, having been initiated into this reality, into these truths of the gospel, we spend then the whole of our Christian life living out these baptismal truths. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is living into our baptismal identity. So every time that we acknowledge God's power and our weakness, every time we acknowledge that God is the rule maker, and that we have sinned and fallen short. Every time we acknowledge that God is the master and we are the servant, every time we choose the path of suffering and endurance, every time we humbly submit ourselves in our brokenness and sin to God's redemptive care, every time we say the words of Christ, not my will, but your will be done, the words he said as he went to die. We are living into the reality of our baptismal death with Christ. And in the same way, every time we triumph over difficulties through faith, every time we experience the Holy Spirit's victorious power over our sin, every time we see miraculous healing or see someone respond to the life-giving hope of the gospel, every time we see liberation and freedom and new life, every time we say, along with the words of the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We are living into the reality of our baptismal identity with Christ in his resurrection. 
Our whole life is spent living out these two truths of our death to Christ, death with Christ to sin and death, and our life raised with Christ to the newness of life and his resurrection. We will never be done dying with Christ to sin and death until the final resurrection. That day is coming, but until that day comes, we still have to die to the sin and the death that still clings to us. We have to die with Christ. And we will never reach the fullness of the newness of life in Christ until the final resurrection. We will always be striving forward into the fullness of all that God has promised to us. The whole life of the Christian is a journey into the death and resurrection of Christ. Some moments in our life will call afresh for us to die with Christ. There'll be times when we will encounter difficulties or struggles or trials, and God will say, walk the hard path of obedience here. Trust me in this. Go all the way down into the cross that I'm laying before you. And we will have to walk the path of dying with Christ. And other moments will call for us to embrace and to rise with the optimism and faith of our resurrection in Christ, where he will say, trust me in this. I have given you the victory. Trust me in this. I can provide healing. I can provide deliverance. Both are essential and lifelong aspects of the gospel. Now, very likely, most of us, by personality or by life experience, will resonate a bit more easily with one aspect of the gospel or the other. Some of us might resonate a lot more easily with one aspect of the gospel or another. Some of us are really good at dying with Christ. And others of us are really good at rising with Christ. And this is natural, and it's in keeping with, I think, Paul's vision in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about the the, the many diverse members of the body that all come together in a unified way to further the work of Christ. Right? Some of us are very good at dying. Some of us are very good at rising with Christ. It takes all kinds, and that's why we need each other. But which baptismal truth, I would ask you, are you better at? Are you better at dying with Christ, or are you better at rising with Christ? got a list of words here, two lists that kind of represent some of the, the dying with Christ and the rising with Christ impulses. So let me put this up here on the screen. should be there. Because baptism involves coming to terms with the truth of the world as it is in all of its brokenness and, and who we are in all of our brokenness, dying with Christ compels us to, to focus on truth, on the reality of the world and its brokenness. No kind of Pollyannish pie-in-the-sky utopian idealism. We have to face the facts square in the face. And because the world is broken, because we're broken, because we're prone to the evil of our own sinfulness to move away from God's ideal, we need rules, and we need justice to hold us accountable to these rules, and we need to follow Christ into the path of sacrifice and difficult obedience. We need to endure in difficult obedience. We need to enter into spaces of self-denial, to lay aside our own preferences like Christ taught us and to say, not my will, but your will be done. We need to embrace individual responsibility. All right? we, can't, we can't 
uh, we can't deal with the problem of sin in our life through the community, right? We have to deal with it just between us and God. We need the accountability of the community to help keep us on the narrow way. We need tough love in our lives, right? So this dying with Christ, some of you are very good at that, right? This list here on the right, you, you resonate with it because that is the priorities that you bring to the Christian faith. But others of you are focused on the rising with Christ. This is more your home, rising with Christ over here, the list on the left. And when you think about what it means to be a Christian, you think of kindness because God has been so kind to you. God has been so gracious to you. And so kindness is what you receive in the gospel and what should you extend out in the gospel. You think of the freedom that you have in Christ, freedom from the, from the law and all the rules that would lead to oppression. You think of the, of the fairness and the kindness that God has extended to you and that you want to extend to others. You think of how the gospel has empowered you to be everything that God wants you to be. You think of healing, the spiritual healing. You think of joy. You think of how the community of believers comes together to assist those that are in difficult spots. So like benevolence ministry, we come together as a community to help those who are in difficult uh, places who can't in their individual powers uh, are able to rise through their difficulties financially. You think of compassion. And when you think of love, you think of the tender love of God. So there's these different impulses, right? There's these different impulses. If you've got truth, then be mindful of kindness. If you've got freedom, then don't neglect the rules. If justice comes easily, then work on fairness. Don't just sacrifice for others, empower others. Don't just try to heal suffering, learn to endure through suffering. If you're good at denying yourself, then become good at joy. If you tend to focus on community, then don't neglect individual responsibility. If you find it easy to be compassionate, then grow in your capacity to hold others accountable as needed. If you're quick to show tough love, then learn to be just as quick in showing tender loves. Don't let yourself become lopsided. We need both of these baptismal truths to be worked out in our lives. Embrace and live into both of these baptismal realities. And we need each other for this. You have strengths and spirit-enabled impulses that I don't have, and I have strength and spirit-enabled impulses that you don't have. You teach me how to rise with Christ, I'll teach you how to die with Christ, and vice versa. And together we will learn to rise and die with Christ and become the whole mature body of Christ. All right, now let me summarize again these two baptismal truths. Dying with Christ, our baptism teaches us, dying with Christ is a reminder of the world as it is in all of its brokenness and all of its sin and our part in that world. Rising with Christ is a reminder of the world as it should be the world that will be in all of its ideal perfection because of God's redemptive grace. And then my part in that coming ideal world. All right. So these are the two baptism truths that we find. Okay. Now let's take this framework and apply it to politics. Okay. So politics, 
Our, our political landscape is divided into conservatives and liberals. And have you ever wondered why some values are considered conservative and some values are considered liberal? I mean, what makes a conservative value a conservative value? What makes a liberal value a liberal value? How do these hold together in kind of a, in a coherent way? Most of us know conservative and liberal values when we see them, right? Like I could begin to list them off and you'd be like, yeah, conservative, liberal, conservative, liberal. Like we can, we can see them, but we're not always maybe able to explain why some values are conservative and why some values are liberal. So I've been doing a bit of reading and a lot of thinking lately about this, about what makes a particular value or virtue or impulse a conservative or liberal virtue, value, or impulse. And here's my best shot at providing some sort of definition here to these terms conservative and liberal. The conservative impulse can be defined as seeking to cut with the grain of the world as it is given all of its shortcomings and dangers. So conservatives, generally speaking here, Conservatives are not idealists. They see the world as it is in all of its difficulty, and they try to get others to see the world the same way. So because the conservative impulse seeks to come to terms with the imperfect and often hostile world in which we live, the conservative impulse values order, repentance, Structure, safety, morality, rules, justice, individual responsibility, self-restraint, and accountability. And perhaps above all, the conservative impulse values strength, insofar as strength is the effective agent that protects and secures all these other virtues. And this is why politically conservative people tend to valorize the police, firemen, the military, because all of these in their best forms are meant to provide safety and security and stability and protection in the midst of a dangerous and harmful world. The liberal impulse, on the other hand, can be defined as seeking to progress beyond the world as it is into the world as it should be. Liberals are much more likely to be idealists. They don't want to settle for a broken and harmful world. As a consequence, they value and they try to get others to value compassion and equality and dignity, fairness, patience, unmerited grace, care for the marginalized and community responsibility. And perhaps above all, liberals valorize love insofar as love is the final and ultimate goal of all the virtues. And this is why political liberals tend to value racial empowerment and concern for the poor, because these reflect what the world should be, even if it's not a reflection of what the world actually is. So in some, the conservative impulse insists that we come to terms with the world as it is in all of its shortcomings and all of its hostility. And the liberal impulse insists that we must imagine and work toward the world as it should be 
in all of its ideal potential. All right, so now I got another list. Consider this list here as well that kind of lays out the differences between conservative impulses and liberal impulses. All right, so conservatives, because they focus on the dangers of the present world, the things that are potentially that could harm us in the world, the conservatives are interested in truth because you have to come to terms with the world as it is. You can't have some some idealized utopian view of the world and not and ignore the fact of all the potential harms that are there. And because the world is broken and imperfect, because it's prone to chaos and anarchy, we need rules and we need justice to enforce those rules. And we need people that are willing to sacrifice in order to see justice and those rules done. We need people who are able to endure through difficult circumstances because the world isn't ideal. And we need to teach people self-denial and people need to know how to tighten the belt to get it done for the long haul. We need people who take individual responsibility and don't pass it off to the community to fix. And we need accountability and we need tough love. All right, these are the impulses of conservative liberals because they focus on wanting to make a better world. They're... They're imagining the world as it should be. And so this is where their focus is. And so they, they focus on kindness. They focus on freedom. They focus on fairness and empowerment that everyone would be able to become all that they are. That we would focus on, that they would focus on healing and joy and community assistance. The community isn't there just to kind of keep people in line, but to come along and help people and compassion. And when liberals think about love, they think about tender love. Now, wait a minute, you say, that's the same list that we just saw before. Well, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Go figure. I mean, how did that, how did that happen? Remember what we saw about the two truths of baptism. Dying with Christ in baptism reminds us of the world as it is in all of its sin and all of its brokenness. Rising with Christ in baptism is a reminder of the world as it should be in all of its ideal perfection and as it will be in God's redemptive grace. Dying with Christ is a basically conservative movement of the gospel. Rising with Christ is a basically liberal movement of the gospel. And the point I want to make here, and what I've been working towards since we started, is to make this point that politically conservative and politically liberal impulses actually map onto and are consistent with the truths of the gospel. Now, that's not quite the same thing as saying that politically conservative and liberal platform positions are consistent with the gospel. There are many manifestations of these two impulses in North American politics and our co contemporary landscape that are not true or accurate reflections of the gospel. So I'm not saying that everything on the political right or everything on the political left is a true reflection of Christianity's dying with Christ and rising with Christ. So I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that these two basic impulses, the conservative impulse and the liberal impulse, these impulses that animate 
of Christians that animate your political engagement are in fact distinctly Christian. Christians who more naturally resonate with Christianity's dying with Christ movement of the gospel will often, not always, but will often more naturally resonate with conservative political strategies. And Christians who more naturally resonate with Christianity's rising with Christ movement of the gospel will often, not always, more naturally resonate with liberal political strategies. And here's what we need to learn to be gracious to each other. Because politics and political issues are enormously complex. They're very complex. And there's often an extended lag time. I think this is what makes them so complex. There's often an extended lag time between cause and effect. And it's not always easy to see from our vantage point, which baptismal truth should take precedent at any given political moment. So what's needed now? More truth or more kindness? More tough love or more tender love? More individual responsibility or more community assistance? I mean, shoot, that's hard to know when you're raising kids, let alone raising a country. Right? I mean, that's tricky stuff. When the Christian mom says, we need to help the kids embrace their freedom in Christ. And the Christian dad says, we need to help the kids submit to Christian boundaries. They both are drawing from true and genuine Christian impulses. Both freedom and boundaries are absolutely essential to Christian flourishing. Both of these are baptismal truths. So in the same way that good Christian parents can genuinely disagree about which baptismal truth should take precedent at any given family moment, good Christian citizens can genuinely disagree about which baptismal truth should take precedent at any given cultural moment. So we got to be generous to each other. We have good people in this church. I mean, there are a few rotten eggs among you. No, that's not true. It's not true. We have good people in this church who are really trying to do right by what God has called them to be. And each of us come with our own kind of innate sort of default impulses, rising with Christ or dying with Christ. And they're both true. And they're both right. And they both are needed at various points in our own lives, in our church's life, in our country's life. But it's hard to know sometimes, like, which truth do you lean into in any particular moment? That's not always so easy. So we got to be generous to each other. If your true and legitimate Christian impulse slants you in a different direction politically than me, I may think you're wrong about what is the most needed impulse in the moment, but I honor your impulse as genuinely Christian. Because America needs to die with Christ just as much as America needs to rise with Christ. So let's not dismiss each other's true Christian impulses as inherently sub-Christian. Let's honor both lists of virtues as Christian virtues, even if we can't agree which list should take precedent at the moment. Now, I know I have not answered every question. I think perhaps I've not answered 
maybe some of the biggest questions. So hold off sending me your angry emails until after next week's sermon, right? Then you can fire away with all your angry emails. Some of you might be thinking, yes, but what about when the other political party adopts policies and positions that are explicitly anti-Christian? Are you saying, Pastor Gerald, that it's okay to follow your preferred Christian impulse all the way into supporting abortion on the left or racism on the right? And I've heard that from both sides in the last number of months. I've sat down with people from both sides who have said, I don't see how a Christian could vote for a Republican. And then I've talked to people on this. I do not see how a Christian could vote in good conscience for a Democrat. Carrying on with what you're saying. You're saying, from where I sit, Pastor Gerald, the other political party is so destructive and so anti-Christian. There's nothing good there. No Christian impulse would lead a good Christian to vote for that party. All right, well, that's a good question. It's a fair question. I think it gets to the nub, really, of a lot of our conflict, but it's going to take an entire sermon to answer that question. So you got to come back next week and I'm going to take a stab at it. But for now, let me encourage all of us to consider that both impulses that undergird our political engagement, my political engagement and your political engagement, are both impulses consistent with dying with Christ and rising with Christ. Both of these are true Christian impulses. Let's avoid the hubris that insists that mature Christians who vote different than us are driven by sub-Christian or even anti-Christian impulses. Both impulses need to govern our engagement with the world. Let's be gracious to each other as we try to draw from these mutual Christian impulses about how they should engage with the world and politics. It's not easy to figure out. On the whole, I will say this. I think we're doing a pretty good job with this. I don't think we're really in in a a ton of bad shape, right? I think this may be a bit more of a challenge for some of you who are more uh, prone to and thinking about politics. You care more about politics, so it's harder. But on the whole, I'm very proud of where we've been as a church, that we have put our loyalty to Christ And we've given grace to each other to try to sort out the complexities and the difficulties of how we should engage that faith in the political realm. And I want us to see that we don't have to just forgive each other for being evil, right? But we can acknowledge that there are Christian impulses that are driving a person different than our impulses, but still Christian impulses into the political world. And we can honor those impulses, even if we don't agree with the outworking or the timing of those impulses. We're all together wanting to embrace who we are in Christ. So let's keep doing that. Join me tonight uh, with Dr. Baycote and Dr. Chatraw. I think this is going to be a great conversation. We're going to maybe try to work out some more of this stuff. If you can't make it tonight, let me encourage you to uh, pick up the, uh, the webinar later uh, throughout the week. It'll be recorded, so you'll be able uh, to listen in. We have a... Uh, resource page on the website on politics and Christian unity. Uh, There's an article uh, that I've written that covers a lot of the same ground that we talked about this morning. Also a podcast that I did with the Center for Pastor Theologians and the link to the 
uh, webinar will be on that page. I think we're going to put this next two sermons on that page as well, but encourage you to check out some of those uh, resources as well. We've got more work to do on this, but I'm proud of how well we have been doing. And I love you all. And and I uh, thank you for loving each other so well in the midst of all of this. We're going to close with the song uh, that we sang, this new song, Waymaker, as we think about uh, what God is calling us to do as we move forward into our politically diverse reality, right? If we were just all Democrats or all Republicans, it'd just be so much simpler, wouldn't it? But we'd be robbed of one of the impulses of Christianity if we all just leaned right or all just leaned left. So there's a beautiful kind of messiness to it. But it, it takes Jesus being the way maker in all of that, right? We can't do it on our own. So let's sing and celebrate the fact that Jesus is the way maker in the midst of our political diversity. Father, thank you that you have given us Christ as the way maker. And uh, we, on our own, we would just go one way. We would just go straight into our um, conservative impulses, divorce them from you and live in fear. Or we would go straight into our liberal impulses, divorce them from you, and we would live in some sort of utopian hope that isn't grounded in reality. God, I thank you that Jesus has come and he holds together the liberal and the conservative impulse in his death and his resurrection. Help us to embrace both, Lord. As, a, as individuals, help us to embrace both as a congregation. God, we thank you that you love us in this way. Help us to move forward in hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.